Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever in the world you may be tuning in from. Uh, welcome to the Alliance for Science Live. I'm your host, Chris Knight, coming to you from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, in the United States. Uh, the Alliance for Science is based at the Department of Global Development in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences uh, at Cornell University. Today, we'll be spending the hour discussing some of the grand challenges that farmers will be facing across the world in coming years. We'll talk about the hopes and expectations for a new governmental administration that's coming to the United States um, as, as President-elect Joe Biden is going to pick up the story of uh, global development um, where uh, it's been left off by the previous administration with all the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, at the Alliance for Science, we're concerned particularly about smallholder farmers and global food security giving farmers access to the technologies they want and need to use to increase their yields and environmental sustainability. Um, and yet it's a painful irony that the poorest people, the hungriest people and the poorest people in the world are farmers. Um, according to the world, world Health Organization, uh, global hunger was on the rise prior to the emergence of COVID-19. Almost 700 million people went hungry in 2019 uh, and the pandemic is estimated to push an additional 130 million people into food insecurity. That's uh, almost 1 billion people. Um, and then currently 3 billion people worldwide cannot afford a healthy diet in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southern Asia. This is true for 57% of the population, 57% of the population. Um, and while on the production and the marketing side, the Food and Agriculture Organization found that COVID-19 COVID-19 pandemic is substantially affecting market access for smallholder producers. Um, and amidst these difficulties, farmers can expect to be continually challenged by climate change, depleted soils, stiff competition in markets, and emerging threats from agricultural pests and diseases. So with this in mind, we know the situation is dire. Um, and today we'll be discussing these looming, looming challenges in global food systems, agriculture, and the environment. We'll discuss uh, what opportunities for impact can be utilized across different sociocultural contexts and geographies. Uh, will the rich countries in the world be able to realize an inclusive development paradigm that reduces poverty for men, women, boys, and girls from the Sahel to South Asia to Central and South America? Will smallholder farmers be given the tools they need to sustainably manage their land? produce enough food for people to eat and be able to sell at a high enough price to make a profit. Um, and to interrogate these ideas, uh, we're joined by a few guests. Um, we we couldn't have uh, Jime Adum on the line today, but we're going to hope to have him back a different, uh, different time on AFS Live. Um, Arif Hussein will be joining us from Bangladesh. He's um, the executive director of Farming Future Bangladesh, a communications and uh, community engagement initiative that works to improve access to agricultural innovations to ensure sustainable food security. He holds a postgraduate degree in international relations from the University of Dhaka and is a 2015 Alliance for Science Global Leadership Fellow. And we also have Colin Christensen. He's the Global Policy Director of the One Acre Fund. Uh, they're a Washington, D.C. based nonprofit that provides financing and training to 1 million smallholder farmers in six countries in Eastern and Southern Africa. Um, so first I'd like to thank um, Colin for joining us and 
and uh, joining us on time. Arif will be joining us shortly. Um, and I'd like to let all of you know that if you have questions or comments, uh, you can put those in the chat or in the Q&A and we'll um, try to address those questions during the program. We want this to be a conversation um, where we can all uh, learn from each other's experience um, and ideas. Um, so um, thank you so much for joining me on the program, Colin. Uh, are you there with us? Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Chris. Um, so I'd first like to talk about if you could introduce uh, yourself and the One Acre Fund to our audience. I think a lot of the people who are watching are familiar with um, uh, uh, smallholder farmer issues and um, some of the things you're working on, but they might not know your organization or what you've been involved in. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, so yeah, so One Acre Fund, as you mentioned, we work in Eastern Southern Africa. We serve um, over a million smallholder farmers. We're, in, we're an agricultural service provider uh, to smallholder farmers. We are, um, we're a nonprofit, so we're mission driven to improve the livelihoods of those farmers. Um, but we work like a business and we provide a um, sort of a complete service bundle to address the sort of key constraints that the farming populations we serve face. Um, so our, the typical farmer we serve, she, she tends to be a woman, more than 60% of our farmers are women. Um, and she only, she only has an acre or so of land to farm. Um, in some countries like Burundi or Rwanda, that can go down to less, less, than, um, less than half an acre of land. So not a lot of, not a lot of work, not a lot of land to work with. Um, she relies on the rain um, for, her, for her harvest. Um, she doesn't have enough money to buy irrigation equipment. Um, and she is gonna primarily grow staples to feed her family. And, and she'll often actually, her family will often face what's called a hunger season where they can't even grow enough food to, um, to eat, let alone to sell um, between, between growing seasons. And so, you know, our mission is really to try to deal with the key constraints that she faces that, like, that, uh, that lead to this reality. So the first of these constraints is she doesn't have cash at planting to buy the right inputs, the right fertilizer or the, you know, the right hybrid seed um, to maximize her harvest. And so we provide those inputs on credit to her. Um, even if she did have the cash, she lives in a very rural area and she doesn't have access to those quality inputs. And so we actually distribute the inputs to effectively to her doorstep. Um, and so distribution and access is another key part as well as financing to what we're able to, to provide. Um, we also provide training to maximize the return on the investment of those inputs. As I think anyone on this call knows, um, you know, it's not enough to just apply fertilizer or get the right seed. You have to, you know, you have to use it right. So we, we teach microdosing of, um, of fertilizer to make sure that um, none of it is wasted and, and, you know, we really can maximize its return. Um, or we plant, you know, we teach simple practices like row planting. Um, we actually have a network of almost 7,000 full-time field officers um, that live in rural communities that are from those rural communities that are actually critical to our whole model. They're the ones that, that sign up our farmers for our, you know, for our financing package. They're the ones that lead the distribution and they give weekly trainings uh, to the farmers we serve. Um, and we also do work, the, the last part of the model is we also do work around market facilitation. Um, a lot of it is actually around just teaching good storage practices and we actually provide storage equipment as part of our bundle um, to make sure that farmers can, um, can sell, either hold on to their food to eat or sell it when market prices rise. And so I think it's that complete, that complete package that we're able to provide um, that allows us to, um, 
to, well, allows the farmers we serve to, to, to basically grow their own way out of poverty. And through just solving these key constraints, you know, the farmers we serve can increase their incomes by upwards of 50% after they pay back the loan. Um, and we get 98, 99% repayment on our loans. Um, so that's the, that's the model. And I think for us, you know, our mission is to serve as many of the smallholders, you know, across Africa we can, but we see 55 million that face similar constraints and, and, you know, it's difficult to serve all of them. So I'm very glad we're talking today and thinking about how, especially the new Biden administration, um, which is potentially going to have a strength in Senate majority, um, can, can help to solve these constraints. So thank you. Right. So I, I think a lot of us were w watching the uh, Georgia runoff elections until uh, late last late. night trying to figure out <laughs> what was going to happen. And um, I'm wondering, you know, you your organization has recently moved into a space where uh, you're trying to influence people in Washington to think more about the priorities that smallholder farmers are having. And so I'm curious, uh, how is that conversation going? And, and what do you what are you trying to impart on, on on some of these people who are making these decisions about, you know, how to spend uh, USA's twenty billion dollar budget, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question, and um, actually, you'd mentioned we're not actually DC based. I'm the only employee in DC. Um, we're we're based in the field. We actually have been supported by USAID in the past, and I think the Feed the Future program that USAID has been leading for the last you know, five or six years has actually done, done, done a great job in helping to solve some of these same constraints. And um, it's actually USAID money that helped us expand into, let's say, you know, Uganda and Malawi. Um, I think though, one of the things to think about now is it's not enough to just think about food security on its own. I think you also have to consider how to build the resilience of these smallholders as what is already a precarious existence becomes more difficult because of climate change. And I think that Feed the Future has done, you know, great work in, in helping, you know, you know, working with partners like us to, to solve the food security challenge. But I think as the Biden administration, you know, after COVID, climate change is going to be their big focus. And I think it's imperative that they put smallholders at the center of, of their climate change strategy from the perspective of, of helping smallholders adapt to what is um, going to be a very difficult, you know, you know, 10, 20, 50 years ahead, um, and not just think about uh, kind of climate change mitigation. I think, you know, smallholders are the least responsible, but will be among the most affected um, from climate change. I mean, some estimates have you know, crop yields going down by 20% in the countries we serve, um, certainly in a more unpredictable way. So I think it's really imperative that the Biden administration prioritizes smallholders in a new way and, and USAID is, is part of that. I wanna turn the conversation over to Arif Hussein, who's joining us from Dhaka, Bangladesh. He's the uh, executive director of Farming Future Bangladesh. Um, and I, I wanted to know if you could um, reflect on the story of um, BT eggplant. Um, it was a, um, a crop that took a long time to develop and commercialize and actually deliver to um, farmers, but it is, it is delivering benefits. So if you could maybe walk our audience through, um, through that process and, and why did it take so long to actually deliver that benefit? Um, and it, it, and this, this is a project that spanned 
um, multiple political administrations, but this is the career scientists, uh, the career people um, on the ground who were doing the work for decades actually made it possible. And um, I wanna uh, hear um, your, your, your thoughts about, about how that went and, and what could have been improved um, to make uh, that process have gone more quickly. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, thanks, Dr. Colleen and the attenders from different continent, I believe. So uh, we actually have published a, a piece of article uh, on the history of BT Acton project. It's available in the project website. Uh, in brief, uh, I would share the historic event. Uh, the research actually started back in 2005. Uh, in Bangladesh and it took, uh, now it's 2020, 2021, in fact. So almost like 15 years of time it took to get it popularized within the smallholder farmer uh, in Bangladesh. So historically talking about it, the original research started in multiple Asian countries, naming Bangladesh, India, and in Philippines. And Bangladesh is the only fortunate country to get it approval through the existing regulatory system. And as you know that all these three countries, they have their different background and different uh, political uh, dynamic, which is very much important for the development, R&D research and development and the approval of BT Ekman project. So the question comes that why it took so long? First of all, uh, as in my country, uh, our research station, we have not done any extensive research on biotech and GMO earlier, the, the project of BT Ekman project. And then uh, when it became prominent with the developed variety and developed line, then we had to go through the approval system that we have in our country. We have a determined specific law, we call it biosafety regulation. So according to the regulation, the scientists had to submit all their information for approval. But unfortunately, back in 2012, uh, the scientists faced a court case against BT plant approval. And it has to go through the uh, 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 law. Actually, science did not work directly. It has to go to the court. Uh, the anti-GM activist, they filed a case against BT plant in India, Bangladesh, and Philippines. Uh, activist organization like Greenpeace and other prominent big local level NGOs, they worked against it. And when even after approval, these NGO activists, environmental activists, they shared lots of misinformation with the smallholder farmer. And uh, eventually it took a lot of time for, for that reason. The other thing for BT Ekman project is that it has a uh, particular crop cycle. I mean, you have to wait at least six months to eight month period of time to get one, one cycle, one, one crop cycle. So that also takes some time. So I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier that there are different political people and uh, political leaders who were involved in this whole procedure. 
which is to some extent a fortunate scenario for most of the developing countries. If you have strong political will, you get things done quickly. But in case of biotech and GMO or in case of any other science, it should be based on science, not based on political will. For example, India, they released BT cotton, they got it approved. And from a cotton importing country, they are one of the largest exporter now. But when they raised the question about BT eggplant, when they raised the question about genetically engineered mustard, then it became very complicated. So they have a bystander for different crop. So uh, <laughs> it's very complicated. And you know, for, for unlike any other crop, all these crops have multiple parties involved in, in, in the scenario. For example, in lab, we have scientists. Uh, we got the uh, technical support from different donor. Then when it's approved, we have the regulatory committee who are not directly involved with the R&D, with the research and development. So they have their own different timeline. When it's released, then we have the farmer who does not have any idea of this new trade and new crop. So that is new. that was new for them. When it came to the consumers, even for them, it was new, new, a new crop. So all these different parties involved in this whole, you know, like game and pack, they were much lucky to get it approved in Bangladesh. In case of India and Philippines, the political will and the activists, they were very strong and they could not get it approved. So I think for biotech and GMO and other regulatory approval system that you have, it's very country specific. It's very crop specific. We don't have any universal standard. For example, if you get BT eggplant approved in Bangladesh, you have done all the research, you have done all the study, and you have a regulatory system which is compliant with the Cartagena protocol. So why you need the same thing to be regulated in India? Why you need the same thing to be regulated in Philippines? or in other countries of the world? That's the question. I mean, in 2021, if we are willing to take a vaccine approved in US, approved in India, we don't raise any question. In case of food, why we raise so many questions? That confuses people. Because once one thing is regulated, that follows all the standards and protocol, and that should be regulated in, in, in across other different continent. So I think there has to be some sort of understanding within the community, within the scientist community and within the policy and regulatory communities so that we can determine that we have some common practice and common understanding. And once we get one crop regulated in one country that should be regulated in other countries as well if it contains similar kind of, uh, you know, like traits and characteristics. So for case of BT eggplant, I think it's a good learning for Bangladesh and other countries other developing countries like my friends in Africa, they might uh, learn something from the BT Excellent project. It was funded by USAID. Uh, it was led by Bangladesh government with some technical support from other universities, uh, particularly from Cornell University. And right now, uh, as far I know that more than 30,000 farmers are growing the crop and they are happy with it. So we need to let people, yeah. 
And Arif, I wanted to kind of touch more on that point is how, how after you got the approval for it, how did you actually move, move it into farmers fields? How did you actually um, engage with them and do all these communications and outreach um, and social work that's really needed to actually um, make, make this investment worthwhile to actual people? So uh, one thing I should mention here is that if the technology is good for people, people definitely takes that as the lead. You don't need any channel, you don't need any protocol or system to make it popular. And in case of BT Eggplant, we have uh, an extension system in Bangladesh. Uh, more than 35 to 40,000 uh, official from uh, government, from private sector, from different NGOs, they work in the extension system. So they kind of uh, spread the seed and seedling with smallholder farmer. We also had some support from the uh, research institute who provided the seed to smallholder farmer. That's how it initially started. And now BT brinjal and BT eggplant is an inbreed variety, meaning that farmers actually can save the seed, can multiply it and can share it with their neighboring farmer. So they are also kind of like working as an extension people to uh, disseminate and uh, spread the technology with, with smallholder farmer. But most important is that if you have the technology working on the ground, then farmers don't hesitate to take take it in their in their field. Um, and I want to turn it over back to Colin. And I'm curious, uh, like, what has really worked um, for the farmers that you're working with in terms of um, communication and outreach? Um, and and for example, you're doing training. And how do you get uh, more people? Um, engaged and, and sensitized to um, a, a more more technical way of, of farming and, and respecting local cultures and, and local practices, local knowledge, um, working across the different geographies that you're working in. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is the key question in our work, right, is how do you um, you know, it's not enough to just have the technology, right? Whatever technology that is, it's about how do you encourage adoption of that technology? And I think in our case, I think it begins by just being very embedded in the field. Um, so I'd mentioned we have these six and a half, 7,000 field officers who are hired from the local communities we work in. Um, many of them have actually been farmers or group leaders because we, we, we group farmers into, into groups. Um, so they've, they've, you know, they're known in the community. Um, and I think they are really are like our key unit of scale because they're the ones that like create the farming groups and they, they're the ones that are responsible for delivering all of our program, but they're also able to give those trainings and they have the trust of the local community. Um, but I mean, it's not just the field officers, all of our headquarters are also based in rural areas, not just, you know, not in the Nairobi's and the Kigali's of the world, but actually in towns no one's ever heard of, like Rubengera or Kakamega. Um, so I think being really in the field with the farmers is critical. I think the second part is, you know, really thinking, I, I think really prioritizing the balance between 
like, you know, giving farmers a, a array of options, right? Ultimately, farmer choice is what's going to drive um, your work. And so you have to respect farmer choice. You have to respect that farmers are very conservative, that if they make the wrong choice, it means their, far their family goes hungry. And so they're, they're, you need to give them options, but also recognize that they're not going to move into new products easily. And so you need to educate them about the new products. I and mean, we have a whole sequence of, 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 um, of scaling where we start with small groups and we scale, you know, eventually to tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, you know, once we sort of prove that farmers will, you know, actually get a product. And so it's really about testing that demand, making sure you understand what the farmer really wants. Um, and, and thinking very carefully about behavior change when you do want to push a new product. I mean, certainly something we struggle with all the time is how do you move farmers off of just the staple crops that they, that they know and love to crops that we know are more nutritious. Like let's, you know, like iron fortified beans is a great example where, you know, we know biofortified products are, are beneficial to farmers, but getting them to invest their own money into that becomes very hard. So I think you just have to be very, very deliberate in how you work with farmers to sort of demonstrate the value. Um, um, and, and yeah, really think carefully about that. And, and actually, Arif mentioned the idea of save seed. I think that's a critical to some of these products that we want to push that, that we know are beneficial for, let's say, nutrition reasons, iron fortified beans being a great example. We need to just build out a much more robust um, seed supply so that farmers can just be saving that and, and, and moving it to their neighbors because we know they're not actually going to invest their own money in that. So I think you just have to think about all those dynamics. I don't know if that answers the question. And I also, I want to move towards um, expanding on the idea of integrating smallholder adaptation into Biden's climate change policy. Could you talk more about what that would really look like? Um, and what, what are you trying to um, sensitize people in Washington to with, with respect to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I think it's looking at how are you helping farmers deal with the unpredictability of climate change, right? Um, certainly a lot of that is just the work we're all doing. I mean, Arif, all the work, Arif, you're doing, you know, push, pushing out, um, um, pushing out what you're doing is, is, is critical. But I think it's also important to think about some of the ecosystem challenges. So part of that is looking at risk mitigation. So one of the big things that we've struggled with over the years is how to, how to really um, make crop insurance effective. So less than 3% of smallholders across Africa have access to crop insurance. Um, but we know in the US that crop insurance, the crop insurance market in the US exists because of government support. 60, I think it's 67% or 63% of subsidies in the US are actually paid for by, by the US government through the farm bill. And, but there's nothing like that in, the, in, in, in Africa. There's no support to insurance markets to make sure that they're successful. But insurance is a really critical resilience play. It's a critical adaptation play because in a good year, you don't need the payouts. And the, the insurance that farmers have, and there's a lot of rigorous evidence that shows this, they will then make the investments they need in their field to actually have that bumper harvest if they have a good year. But in a bad year, it effectively becomes a very efficient cash transfer program where the payouts that you provide are helping those farmers to survive the bad year. Um, and it, because of that extra unpredictability, 
um, the crop insurance then becomes really critical. So certainly something the Biden administration can do if they if they reinvest in 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 this work is you know thinking about how to support those crop insurance markets. Another op another idea is how are you just helping farmers increase their income in addition to their food security. Um, so something we have had a lot of success with is on-farm agroforestry. So not reforestation, but like afforestation on farmer fields. And farmers can use those trees for a number of things, but they basically grow into assets that the farmer has that they can sell um, when, um, when they have a shock for the, for the family, right? Whether it's a bad harvest or a medical shock, and we expect those shocks to increase. Um, and they're very cost-effective. I mean, just for, you know, 10 or 20 cents, a tree can be worth five or six dollars in a few, in a few years. So I think it's about looking at a, a broader range of interventions that help farmers navigate um, navigate that unpredictability and just build their resilience. Uh, Chris, I'd like to add a few points here. As you know, that like we have um, nearly uh, two billion people in South Asia who are dependent on agricultural produce or agricultural commodity. And climate change will have significant drastic impact uh, in agriculture. As in a recent study from IFRI, we got to know that by 2050, uh, the total agricultural produce will shrink as much as 50%, you know, like so that someone literally need to grow food and on the other hand, we, we are having um, the, this, 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 you know, like population growth in South Asian region. So with that threat overwhelming that the climate change, it will definitely shrink the production of staple crop, particularly rice, wheat and corn. So, I mean, um, uh, we have a fear mongering around, around uh, the expert, uh, even today I had a, uh, a program where I was talking with people about it, that what long-term plan we have to, 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 the, to the resilience of climate change. Uh, it will only technology make it uh, uh, beneficial for farmer or what adoption plan we actually have? Uh, so these are the like thing that people are talking about it. And uh, other than that, you know, like for, uh, for, for the agricultural produce, nutrition is a key component that has been talked much in recent time. Uh, particularly, we are capable of growing food now and we need to add value to our food, meaning that whether we can ensure micronutrient in, in our food chain, particularly in Asian countries, you know, like people only eat rice in Asia. So these are the things that experts are looking into um, where, where we have women participation, where we have youth participation, because in most of the Asian countries, majority of our population are youth. So what level of involvement we have in among youth for agriculture, whether farming is a profitable trade or whether it's an age-old traditional cultural profession that we are doing for decades and for centuries. So these are the questions and these are the issues that has been raised in recent times. And particularly, you know, like climate change and nutrition, this has been talked much in recent times for the COVID. And uh, this pandemic has taught 
us many things, particularly how we can tackle the challenge, how we are preparing ourselves for future. So I think uh, as uh, Colin mentioned that climate change and the climate adaptability and support from, you know, like um, expert and support from other communities, other countries will definitely be meaningful for the South Asian countries. And Arif, I wanted to expand on another idea and, and I kind of, this kind of just came to me, but I want to maybe flip the script a little bit. I, I think, um, I, I think of, of Bangladesh and the, and the BT Brinjal story as, as a story where Bangladesh is really leading uh, and leading ahead of a lot of other countries. And um, I even think that, uh, you know, the, so for, for Bangladesh to have approved and released a, a public interest GMO vegetable, um, it's something that the, even the US is kind of lagging behind in that respect. And so I'm wondering, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit about a new American administration, but I'm wondering what's your message to American progressives? Who, what's your message to Americans who are still on the fence about uh, new plant breeding technologies um, we still have a lot of work to do on food security, even within the US uh, that we need to focus on. Um, so I, I'm just curious if you if you ever think about about that and, and flipping the script in in a way where you know you're you're leading on an issue where we are kind of stuck behind. Well, I mean, uh, to me, all these like trade policy and regulations need to be more reality driven. Otherwise, all this profit and benefit for the smallholder farmer that we all talk about will not reach the actual beneficiary. So, I mean, from a policy perspective, I think uh, these you know, like international trade and policies need to be flexible, need to be more human in regard to you know, like helping out other countries. And I would definitely stress the idea of, uh, uh, you know, like uh, building human capital, I mean, developing human capital for, 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 for the research and innovation and doing, you know, like decentralization of this thing. So that one thing is developed in US or in West should be equally distributed to other part of the world. Otherwise, uh, the global development will not be balanced. You know, like one part will get benefit and other part will shrink. That will not make people happy. That will not eventually make it look good. And technically that will not be effective. So the message from our part to the, to, to you and to your friends and everyone living around you is that Whatever you develop, you have to share because, you know, like uh, if you want to live happily, you need to look at your neighbor that whether they are fit and healthy. We have learned it from this pandemic. I want to touch on the, the pandemic again in just a second. Um, just really quickly, um, just to remind everyone, we're, we're speaking with Arif Hossein from Farming Future Bangladesh and Colin Christensen from the One Acre Fund. Um, and Colin, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how is 
your organization responding to uh, all these new needs and these these double and triple burdens uh, that are now being created by COVID-19. Um, there are like uh, a lot of different think pieces and research pieces about how uh, COVID-19 is affecting farmers, but we're, we're seeing that a lot of farmers are reporting more food insecurity. Um, they're planting lesser amounts. So they're planting on a lesser acreage. They're having trouble getting access to markets. Um, so all of these areas that you're working in are being directly impacted by COVID-19. Uh, what are the gaps that you're seeing with the people you, you're working with and how do we fill them? Yeah, it's been a tough year for everyone, um, especially the populations we serve. Um, and we've definitely seen a lot of disruption to, um, to our populations. I think especially in the early days, there was a lot of disruption to markets. And so far the farmers we serve couldn't sell as much. Um, and you know, we, we definitely see signs that they are more economically stressed. Um, it's definitely increased our cost to serve, partly because you know, when farmer revenue, when farmers household revenue is affected, that obviously affects their ability to, to repay us. Um, so you know, we've navigated it fine, but we've we've noticed that stress. I think we've been lucky that in the areas we work, harvests have actually been fairly strong this year. Um, which actually the big, bigger threat than even COVID was locusts. If, if anyone followed the East African locust threat, um, again, we were very lucky that they missed the areas we serve. So I think that in some sense, we have dodged a bullet in, in our specific geographic areas. Um, I do think that it certainly first forced us to adapt in ways that will be, we'll have to continue. A, a good example of that is we've had to adopt a lot more technology than we have in the past. Um, in particular, you know, we've pushed much more, um, much more cell phone, like USSD, which is like kind of the dumb phone um, technology, much more, much more of that on things like repayment and enrollment. And, and that's helped. That certainly helped because our field officers couldn't get out to the field as much because of social distancing restrictions. And honestly, I think some of those changes we're going to just keep um, because they end up just being more cost effective anyway. Um, but I actually think the bigger lesson from COVID is, is just I think it just demonstrates the value of these sort of hybrid models of, of serving smallholders, right? That we are a market-based solution, right? I mean, farmers are paying market price for services, but the subsidy we get from public funds, from donors, um, allows us to give them a high level of support. And I think that, you know, you look at like, you look at what we do in the US, like there was a report I read on Sunday that the US paid 40% of farmer incomes in the US were covered by the government last year. Now, now that was partly unique to, to, to some of the tariff related support that the Trump administration gave, but I think it shows how farming is just difficult anywhere and the government in rich countries is willing to step in and cover that deficit for farmers. And you don't necessarily, you don't see the ability of, of, to do that in the countries we serve because governments are more cash strapped. So I think what COVID shows is that, you know, the kind of shocks that we, that these farmers face you need hybrid models, these sort of public-private partnerships that, that sort of leverage the ability of farmers to, to grow their own way out of poverty when things are good, but helps give them the support, just like we give in Europe or in the US, that gives them that extra support to help through the bad years. Those hybrid models are critical. And it's COVID now, climate change is gonna bring plenty of new crises coming forward. So I just think for us, the big takeaway is that, you know, we need to, 
we need to give smallholders in Africa or in Asia that, you know, that, that are reforks with, give them the same supports that we give farmers in Europe or in the US. Great, thank you so much for that, Colin. Uh, once again, we're with Colin Christensen from the One Acre Fund and Arif Hossein from Farming Future Bangladesh. Uh, we're on Zoom and we're on Facebook. So if you have any questions or comments, please put those in the chat and we can uh, address those questions live. Um, and we'll keep going here for a couple more minutes. Um, and I, I have a question for both of you is maybe a, a crystal ball question. Um, what, what new technologies or, or new um, interventions or new, new ideas are really exciting you the most in the spaces that we're working in? Uh, maybe uh, Colin, we'll start with you. Oh, that is a, that is a, that is a big question. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of really exciting technology coming, right? I mentioned, you know, how we've leveraged some of it to, to better serve farmers. Um, but I think you see it across, um, across the, across all of the, all of our work. I mean, when I think technology here more, you know, more like digital technology, let's call it that. And so certainly the ability to get information to farmers, you know, um, is, in, is improved now. Like, so one of the things we focus on is optimized agronomy. So we work a lot with PAD, which is a really cool organization that helps use cell phone technology to give more targeted fertilizer and seed recommendations to farmers. So, you know, that's really exciting. Or um, I mentioned crop insurance, because we, we provide um, an element of insurance to our farmers. And there's a lot of interesting satellite technology coming that might, that helps with indexed products that, that help, you know, calculate payouts across wide areas that, that are going to improve the efficiency of that. So I think there's a lot of exciting digital technology. The challenge is making that actually relevant to the choices that farmers are making. And I think there's, there's as many questions as I think there are answers. So I mentioned optimized agronomy. It's one thing to be able to give targeted recommendations, but how are you actually creating the like supply chain to then give targeted fertilizers or seeds to very specific farmers? It's very difficult when you're talking at scale. Or I mentioned the, the satellite technology, there's a lot of promise about being able to calculate more accurate payouts but we have not yet seen it actually lead to um, lead to products that actually work for smallholders. So I think that to me, what I'm excited to look in the next five years or so is how all this promise around digital technology can actually be translated to on the ground reality, um, and and be part of trying to to you know to to draw the circle on that. Arif, um, your thoughts on new technologies and new ideas that are inspiring you um, that you want to see for your community? Uh, for my community, I would rely on evidence-based innovation. That will be the change maker for future. We need more mechanized farming as we are regularly losing, you know, like uh, farm labor. Uh, we need other facility like technically sound facility for irrigation, uh, high yielding crop variety, uh, you know, like climate smart adaptive variety. And we need to train the new generation farmer because all these, you know, like older generation farmer, uh, they are paving the way for the new generation farmer who are technically sound, 
who can adopt the satellite, who can adopt, you know, like any new variety developed through CRISPR, developed through the tool of biotech and GMO. And we need a supportive environment where we have an enabling environment for policy and regulation for, you know, like a regional trade benefit. And we need a connectivity of farmer, of consumers and of the traders and unions together to make it effectively uh, beneficial to decline poverty, to reduce the number of malnourished children. We have around like 4 million children every year uh, that, that, that the number is growing uh, gradually. And in this pandemic, we have seen it, uh, the number is growing drastically. Uh, so we need to find the solutions who, what has evidence and what is the proof that those are effectively working on the ground, which are, you know, like culturally and contextually appropriate for the third world country, for the developing country, and what farmers can e easily adopt and can um, apply in their field and in their farm to grow more food, to grow quality food, so that they can provide healthier and safer food and can also, you know, like earn more so that in coming days with the living expense increasing, they can survive uh, in a better way with their family, with their neighbor around them. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Arif. Um, we're, we're winding down towards the end of this program as we near the end of the hour. And I just want, I would like um, to, to hear kind of um, uh, one last thought about this this idea of um, direct financing to farmers and the the importance of that, um, Colin. Um, there's a lot of money put into, of course, developing new technologies and navigating government bureaucracy. These 20-year um, propositions and it's expensive. Um, but what what can really be done by just giving people the cash that they need to get the technology and the inputs that are already on the shelf? Um, and how does that really motivate your work um, with the One Acre Fund? And what can we learn from that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's um, I think our work shows that, you know, smallholder farmers are a very reliable investment. That, you know, the fact that we're able to get 98, 99% repayment, uh, and actually in some of the, the, the poorer countries we work, like Burundi, that's even approaches 100% sometimes. I think demonstrates that if farmers see the value in a in an investment, that they will make it, and they will they will be very um, reliable um, partners in that. So I think you know the, that's the first that's the first thing is that I think if you get the financing right, um, you can really rely on smallholders as partners. Um, I think there's a separate question though, is that there are some productive assets that you can have that financing relationship with smallholders on. And I think, and see it as something where you can get um, reliable repayment. But I think there's also a bucket of interventions that, that, um, that you do need to subsidize, right? That it's not, especially because of the kind of moral responsibility to support the population, it's not everything can be something farmers will, 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 will pay for. And I think there's a lot of options. There's a lot of questions around, let's say nutrition, right? Like as we try to push out more nutritious products, we know farmers will pay for staple crops. Um, but when you think about more nutritious products, I think there's a question of, 
of at what point is there's just a public good there that needs to be subsidized. I, I've talked about crop insurance as another great example, right? Where, you know, there's not a country in the world where you have a crop insurance market that functions um, effectively without government support. So I think thinking smartly about where, you know, where government subsidy is necessary to sort of catalyze a market or push a public good like nutrition, and where can you just, you know, work in a more um, sustainable way um, relying on market forces and farmers, um, you know, farmers reliability to, like I said earlier, to grow their own way to food security. Um, so I think it's about finding that balance. Well, thank you so much, Colin and Arif. Uh, Colin Christensen is the uh, Global Policy Director for the One Acre Fund. He's based in DC. Uh, they provide uh, financing to more than a million farmers in uh, southern and eastern Africa. And Arif Hussain is the uh, executive director of Farming Future Bangladesh, their uh, uh, communications and uh, farmer advocacy organization uh, based in Bangladesh. So I want to thank both of you for all of your time and your thoughts today. We've had a uh, vibrant discussion around centering the needs of farmers in global development programs and realizing that uh, improving the lives of farmers is the key to global poverty reduction um, and making everyone's lives uh, healthy and productive. Um, so thank you so much and I hope we can continue this conversation. Uh, if you are um, new to the Alliance for Science, you can follow us uh, on Facebook, uh, Science Ally, um, and we'll be doing more of these uh, interesting discussions in the next coming uh, weeks. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, if you have a story idea, you can email me at ck536 at cornell.edu, uh, or you can uh, contact the Alliance for Science uh, through our website, um, uh, it's, it's allianceforscience.cornell.edu. Um, so thank you so much for your time, uh, Colin and Arif, and we'll see you next time. Thank Thanks you so much Arif. for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. And it's an honor for me and for my organization to be here with you and with the global community. Thank you.